Welcome to Trifecta Now, Living A Course in Miracles. This is season five, and it's called The Book Club. We're on chapter 21. Welcome back. God's plan for your salvation could not have been established without your will and your consent, quote unquote. I have many conversations with people about what God sent us here to do. I do not believe God sent us here at all. I believe we made that choice to come here. And because our creator has given us free will, we made that choice. He has no need to interfere with those choices. We've come to fear God because people have been led to believe he's angry, that he punishes us for our sins and holds us accountable. I don't know that God, and I do not get the feeling from that that feeling from the Holy Spirit. Each day, I let the Holy Spirit guide me and help decide for me. I allow him to lead me and inspire me. My will is my father's, and I am willfully giving consent to be guided and told what to do. Let's face it, this world is not a great place. It almost seems like the obvious choice. (laughs) Today, we'll continue with chapter 21, Reason and Perception. I'll cover the following sections. The function of reason, reason versus madness, the last unanswered question, the inner shift, That'll end chapter 21. I'll start chapter 22, which is salvation and the holy relationship, and I'll just cover the introduction today. So let us begin. So on in my book, the, the function of reason is on page 456, paragraph one, sentence seven. So we're going to start in the middle of that paragraph. It says, perception is a choice and not a fact. But on this choice depends far more than you realize as yet. For on, the, for on the voice you choose to hear and on the sights you choose to see depends entirely on your whole belief in what you are. Perception is a witness but to this and never to reality. Yet it can show you the conditions in which awareness of reality is possible or those where it could never be. Paragraph two says, Reality needs no cooperation from you to be itself. And when we talk about reality, just to stop for a second, we're talking about God's reality, eternity. But your awareness of it needs your help because it is your choice. Listen to what the ego says and see what it directs you see. And it is and it is sure that you will see yourself as tiny, vulnerable, and afraid. You will experience depression, a sense of worthy worthlessness, <laughs> and feelings of impermanence and unreality. You will believe that you are helpless. You are helpless prey to forces far beyond your own control and far more powerful than you. And you will think the world you made directs your destiny. For this will be your faith, but never believe because it is your faith it makes, never believe because it is your faith it makes reality. Paragraph three, there is another version, no, another vision and another voice in which your freedom lies, awaiting but your choice. So I'm going to stop here for a second. So this is basically how I started this podcast today, talking about our free will and our consent. And a lot of um, the word choice is being used a lot here. We make our reality. 
we make our choices. And I don't think people truly understand to what level that really runs. Sentence four in paragraph three says, there are They are as simple and as natural to it as breathing to the body. They are the obvious response to calls next page for help and only one it makes. Paragraph five in the middle of the next page, 457 says, God's plan for your salvation could not have been established without your will and your consent. Sound familiar? It must have been accepted by the son of God for what God wills for him, he must receive. For God's wills, for for God wills not apart from him, nor does the will of God wait upon time to be accomplished. Okay, so that's an interesting concept right there. What they're saying is that God doesn't set a time frame for us to wake up and realize that we are the will of God and that we share his will. He's hoping we'll do it at any point in time, and that's the comp, um, that's the point about salvation. That's when it's established for us is when we realize it's always it's always been there. Sentence four says, "Therefore, what joined the will of God must be in you now, being eternal. You must have set aside a place in which the Holy Spirit can abide and where He is." He must have been there since the need for him arose and was fulfilled in the same instant. Such would your reason tell you if you listened. Yet such is clearly not the ego's reasoning. Your reason's alien nature to the ego is proof you will not find the answer there. Paragraph seven at the bottom, sentence three says, your identity as much a true effect of this same source as is the answer. Must therefore, next page, be together and the same. Paragraph eight says, faith and perception and belief can be misplaced and serve the great deceiver's needs as well as truth. But reason has no place at all in madness, nor can it be adjusted to fit its end. Faith and belief are strong in madness, guiding perception towards what the mind has valued. Paragraph nine says the part of the mind where reason lies was dedicated by your will with union with your fathers to the undoing of insanity. Here was the Holy Spirit's purpose accepted and accomplished both at once. Reason is alien to insanity and those who use it have gained a means which cannot be applied to sin. I'm going to stop right there with that paragraph for a second. What this is saying is that our understanding of what we are lies deep within. And if we can get in there and start to see what we are and that this body doesn't mean anything, then we're going to understand that sin doesn't apply to us, that there's no such thing. Because God loves us perfectly, unconditionally. And because of that love, we need to learn to love ourselves. And when we love ourselves that same way, sin will have no meaning to us at all. Paragraph 10, sentence four says, faith and belief upheld by reason cannot fall, fail, 
to lead to change perception. And in this change is room made way for vision. Vision extends beyond itself, as does the purpose that it serves and all the means for its accomplishment. So that is the end of that section, which is the function of reason. I do like that last line. It says vision extends beyond itself. So remembering that they're saying sight is of this world. So what we see around us and and the reality, well, non-reality that we see is our sight. But our vision is when we look beyond all of that and we see something higher and we see a higher purpose. That's the vision they want us to tune into. That's the vision they want us to live by. The next section is called Reason Versus Madness on page 459 in my book. Paragraph one starts with reason cannot see sin, but can see errors and leads to their correction. It does not value them, but their correction. Reason will also tell you that when you think you sin, you call for help. That's the other thing is that we know that sins are not sins or their mistakes or their errors that we make, and every error or mistake can find correction. Paragraph two, sentence four says, who looks upon himself as guilty and sees a sinless world? And who can see a sinless world and look upon himself apart from it? Sin would maintain you and your brother must be separate. But reason tells you that this must be wrong. If you and your brother are joined, how could it be that you have private thoughts? And how could thoughts that enter into what but seems like yours alone have no effect at all on what is yours? If minds are joined, this is impossible. Hmm. Paragraph three, sentence seven says, you do not leave insanity by going somewhere else. You leave it simply by accepting reason where madness was. Madness and reason see the same things, but it is certain that they look upon them differently. Madness, paragraph four says, madness is an attack on reason that drives it out of mind and takes its place. Reason does not attack, but takes the place of madness quietly, replacing madness if it be the choice of the insane to listen to it. Next page, paragraph five, the body does not separate you from your brother. And if you think it does, you are insane, but madness has a purpose and believes it also has the means to make its purpose real, to see the body as a barrier between what reason tells you must be joined, must be insane, must be insane, nor could you see it if you heard the voice of reason. Again, right? Talking about what voice are you listening to? And you have to be really careful to make that distinction between what voice you're listening to. Because the ego is very loud. It's very strong. It's very judgmental. And that's how you'll know it's the ego. Because ego looks for the bad in the world. It looks for the negativity in everything. When you help to clear that away through self-love and self-reflection, then the other voice comes through. The voice of the Holy Spirit which is the voice of God. Paragraph seven says, neither your brother nor yourself can be attacked alone, but neither can accept a miracle instead without the other being blessed by it and healed of pain. I love that line because what it's saying is that no matter what you do, no matter how wonderful 
wonderful things you do that it always affects everybody else. And in saying that, every wonderful thing everybody else does affects you. Reason like love would reassure you and seeks not to frighten you. The power to heal the Son of God is given you because he must be one with you. You are responsible for how he sees himself. Sentence eight, a little bit down, says the instant that you choose to let yourself be healed in the same instant is his whole salvation seen as complete and yours. Reason is given you to understand that this is so. For reason, kind as is the purpose for which it is the means, leads steadily away from madness towards the goal of truth. Next page. Paragraph nine says, you are your brother's savior. He is yours. Reason speaks happily indeed of this. The gracious plan was given love by love. And what love plans is like itself in this. Being united, it would have you learn what you must be. And being one with it, it must be given you to give what it has given and gives still. I love that. Paragraph 10, the son of God is always blessed as one. And as his gratitude goes out to you who blessed him, reason will tell you that it cannot be you, cannot be you stand apart from blessing. The gratitude he offers you reminds you of the thanks your father gives you for completing him. And here alone does reason tell you that you can understand what you must be. Your father is as close to you as is your brother. Yet, what is there that could be nearer than you is yourself. <laughs> um, as an English teacher, I'll tell you, sometimes this book drives me crazy. There's so, there's so many easier ways to say this. So, I again, another paragraph that's really strong and really clear in a message is saying that, you know, you you can't bless one without blessing yourself. And that if we remember that we were all in this together, that there's no way you can separate us, no matter how hard we try, we're not going to be separated. The ego can separate us, yes, and it can make this world a horrible place by doing that. But if you want to find the peace and love and joy that you seek, it's with, it's in your brothers and sisters on this planet with you. Those every one of them are the ones that are going to help you get that. And we have to awaken them somehow. Well, actually, there is one way to do that. And that is to be the person that you want them to be and share that with them, even if they don't give it back to you. Put that out there. Eventually, you have to believe me on this one. It works. Paragraph 11, the power you have over the son of God is not a threat to his reality. It but attests to it. Where could his freedom lie but in himself if he be free already? And who could bind him but himself if he denies his freedom? God is not mocked. No more his son can be imprisoned save by his own desire. And it is by his own desire that he is freed. Such is his strength and not his weakness. He is at his own mercy, and where he chooses to be merciful, there he is free. But where he chooses to condemn instead, there 
is he held a prisoner, waiting in chains, his pardon on himself to set him free. Love, love, love this section too. I really do. Because it's telling you that the power to set yourself free is in you. Nobody else can do it. God doesn't even do it. And if you're thinking God's going to do it, don't do that. (laughs) He's given us each individually the power to set ourselves free. It's a choice. Choose to condemn everyone choose to hold on to the past, choose to hold on to hurts and pains. And yes, you've condemned yourself and you've condemned your father. Let all that go and freedom is yours. And that's the will we share with our father. Next section called the unanswered, the last unanswered question, same page, paragraph one at the bottom says, do you not see that all your misery comes from the strange belief that you are powerless. Being helpless is the cost of sin. Helplessness is sin's condition, the one requirement that it demands to be believed. Next page. Paragraph two says, no one believes the son of God is powerless. And those who see themselves as helpless must believe that they are not the son of God. What can they be except his enemy? And what can they do but envy him, his power, and by their envy, make themselves afraid of it. There are the dark ones, silent and afraid, alone and not communicating, fearful. The power of the Son of God will strike them dead and raising up their helplessness against him. They join the army of the powerless to wage their war of vengeance, bitterness, and spite on him, to make him one with them, because they do not know that they are one with him. They know not whom they hate. They are indeed a sorry army, each one as likely to attack his brother, attack his brother, or turn upon himself as to remember that they thought they are a common cause. Next page, actually, I skip three and four and go to paragraph five. Actually, paragraph five is at the bottom, starts with, yet hate must have a target. There can be no faith in sin without an enemy. Who what, who that believes in sin would dare believe he has no enemy? Could he admit that no one made him powerless? Reason would surely bid him seek no longer what is not there to find. Yet first he must be willing to perceive a world where it is not. It is not necessary that he understand how he can see it, nor should he try. For if he focuses on what he cannot understand, he will but emphasize his helplessness and let sin tell him that his enemy must be himself. But let him only ask himself these questions, which he must decide to have it done for him. And the first question is, do I desire a world I rule instead of one that rules me? Second one, do I desire a world where I am powerful instead of helpless? Third one, do I desire a world in which I have no enemies and cannot sin? And last, and do I want to see what I denied because it is the truth? Paragraph seven, forget not that the choice of sin or truth, helplessness or power is the choice of whether to attack or heal for healing comes of power and attack of helplessness. Whom you attack, you cannot want to heal. And whom you would have healed must be the one you chose to be protected from attack. 
And what is this decision but the choice whether to see him through the body's eyes or let him be revealed to you through vision? How this decision leads to its effect is not your problem, but what you want to see must be your choice. This is a course in cause and not effect. Next page. Oh, wait a minute. Next page. So paragraph eight, but at the top of paragraph eight, there's at the sort of bottom of paragraph eight, but at the top of page 464 is another, two more questions. Is this what I would see? And do I want this? Another questions to ask yourself. Paragraph nine starts with, this is your one decision. This is the condition for what occurs. It is irrelevant to how it happens, but not to why. You have control of this. And if you choose to see a world without an enemy in which you are not helpless, the means to see it will be given you. Paragraph 10 says, why is the final question so important? Reason will tell you why. It is the same as are the other three, except in time. The others are decisions that can be made and then unmade and made again. But truth is constant and implies a state where uh, vacillations are impossible. You can desire a world you rule that rules you not and change your mind. You can desire to exchange your helplessness for power and lose this same desire as a little glint of sin attracts you. And you can want to see a sinless world and let an enemy tempt you to use the body's eyes and change what you desire. That in that paragraph, that's just telling you how we can go back and forth. You know, we can start saying, I'm really, really strong. And then first person who comes in and starts to knock you down, you let that in. And we have to learn to not let that in. And how that's worked for me, just to give you a little added piece to that, is that I rem- every time somebody does that, every time somebody reaches to me and says something negative or it attacks me in any way verbally, I remember, in I, and I say to myself, that is their pain. That is their sin. That is their envy. It doesn't belong to me. It's not mine. So I'm not going to own it. I'm not going to take it on. I'm going to be kind in my response. I'm not going to attack, which only means that I add all that stuff to myself. I'm not doing that. I'm going to talk to them with reason and with kindness and love. And if they don't, if they can't handle that, then I, then I will move away, but I will attempt it because that's how we bring our brothers in line and in sync with us. Paragraph 11 says, in content, all the questions are the same. For each one asks if you are willing to exchange the world of sin for what the Holy Spirit sees, since it is this world of sin, since it is of this world of sin denies. And therefore those who look on sin are seeing the denial of the real world. Yet the last question adds the wish for constancy in your desire to see the real world. So the desire becomes the only one you have. By answering the final question, yes, you add sincerity to the decisions you have already made to all the rest. For only then have you renounced the option to change your mind again. When it is this you do not want, the rest are wholly answered." 
paragraph 13 at the bottom says elusive happiness or happiness in changing form that shifts with time and place is an illusion that has no meaning. Happiness must be constant because it is attained by giving up the wish for the inconstant. Joy cannot be perceived except through constant vision and constant vision can be given only to those who wish for constancy. The power of the Son of God's desire, next page, remains the proof that he is wrong who sees himself as helpless. Desire what you want, and you will look on it and think it real. No thought but has the power to release or kill, and none can leave the thinker's mind or leave him unaffected. So that is the last unanswered question. We're on page 465, and it's called The Inner Shift. Paragraph one, are thoughts then dangerous? To bodies, yes. The thoughts that seem to kill are those that teach the thinker that he can be killed. And so he dies because of what he learned. He goes from life to death, the final proof he valued the inconstant more than constancy. Surely he thought he wanted happiness, yet he did not desire it because it was the truth and therefore must be constant. Paragraph three says, reason will tell you that you cannot ask for happiness inconstantly. For if what you desire you receive and happiness is constant, then you need ask for it, but once to have it always. And if you do not have it always, being what it is, you did not ask for it. Hmm. And next page, 466, paragraph five says, what is the holy instant but God's appeal to you to recognize what he has given you? Here is the great appeal to reason, the awareness of what is always there to see, the happiness that could be always yours. Here is the constant peace you could experience forever. Here is what denial has denied revealed to you. For here, the final question is already answered. And what you ask forgiven, here is the future now. The holy instant is about now, this moment. For time is powerless because of your desire for what will never change. For you have asked that nothing stand between the holiness of your relationship and your awareness of its holiness. That's awesome. So that is the inner shift. So that inner shift we're referring to is, is that commitment to believing that you are something beyond what is here, that what you are is, an, is the essence or the spirit that lies within you. And that's where the Holy Spirit lives. The Holy Spirit doesn't live in a body. Doesn't Holy Spirit doesn't come into your body. And when you ask for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes into the essence or the spirit that you are. And through that will help you retrain your mind to think differently and see this world differently. And that's the inner shift they want us to all embrace. So chapter 22, the salvation is on page, sorry, page 467, salvation in the holy relationship. The introduction will cover and that's how we'll end today. Paragraph one, sentence four says, sin 
is a strictly individual perception seen in the other yet believed by each to be within himself. And each one seems to make a different error and one the other cannot understand. Brother, it is the same made by the same and forgiven for its maker in the same way. The holiness of your relationship begin forgives you and your brother undoing the effects of what you both believed and saw. And with their going is the need for sin gone with them. Paragraph two, who has need for sin? Question mark. Only the lonely and alone who see their brothers different from themselves. It is this difference seen, but not real, that makes the need for sin not real, but seen and seem justified. And all this world be real if sin were so. For an unholy relationship is based on differences where each one thinks the other has what he has not. They come together each to complete himself and rob the other. They stay until they think that there is nothing left to steal and then move on. And so they wander through a world of strangers, unlike themselves, living with their bodies, perhaps under a common roof that shelters shelters neither in the same room, and yet a world apart. Paragraph three, a holy relationship starts from a different premise. Each one has looked within and sees no lack. Accepting his completion, he would extend it by joining with another, whole as himself. He sees no difference between these selves, for differences are only of the body. And I think every couple who gets married should hear this, because we need to know that we're whole people marrying a whole person, marrying a whole person. Because if we come with all these insecurities and we come with all these uh, miseries and all this lack of self-confidence and lack of self-love, it's just the recipe for a disaster in any relationship, in parent-child relationships and sibling relationships and uh, friend relationships and spouse relationships. All those partnerships are ruined when we're not on the same page and we're both not whole. Paragraph four says, think what a holy relationship can teach. Here is belief in differences undone. Here is the faith in differences shifted to sameness. And here is sight of differences transformed to vision. Reason now can lead you and your brother to the logical conclusion of your union. It must extend as you extended when you and he joined. It must reach out beyond itself as you reached out beyond the body to let you and your brother be joined. And now the sameness that you saw extends and finally removes all the sense of differences. So that sameness that lies beneath them all becomes apparent. Here is the golden circle where you recognize the Son of God. For what is born into a holy relationship can never end. That's awesome. Okay, so next week, in two weeks' time, we will continue with chapter 22, salvation. No, that's chapter, yeah, chapter, I was right, chapter 22, salvation and the holy relationship. See, I put salvation in Holy Spirit, so... Huh. which is both really. Um, in two weeks time, I'll cover the following sections, the message of the Holy Spirit, holy relationship. Ooh, I want to say Holy Spirit. Your brother's sinlessness, 
reason and the form of error, the branching of the road, and weakness and defenseless defensiveness. That's what I will cover in two weeks' time. My online book club is still on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If anyone is interested in joining, please email me. There's no cost. I'll send you the link. Thanks for listening. I also wanted to give you an update today on something. I mentioned last year that I was studying to be a pastor, well, actually a reverend. Um, It has been almost two years, and now my ordination is coming up in April. Oh, I'm so excited. I cannot put into words how joyful this makes me feel and how ready I am to be a servant for our Creator. This book has been a huge source of inspiration and awakening for me. And I think I've shared that in my podcast over the last, I think I'm coming into four years. Ha, it's crazy how time flies. I am so happy to be continuing my journey by spreading the message to others. I'm grateful for all of you as this podcast has helped me understand and fulfill my destiny. If you'd like to contact me, you can contact me by email at trifectanow3 at gmail.com. If you have any questions, share a comment, just say hello. I'd love to hear from you. Keep sharing the love. Keep extending it. Remember, this is our journey. Let us together find our way. Live in this moment, the holy instant. It is the only one that will ever matter. Always love, Denise.